wonderful words of life. Indeed, that is what the Word of God is. It is what offers us life, hope, and a desire again for knowing and believing and realizing that there is something far greater for us than the physical life that we live here. Paul was mindful of that as he was writing to the Philippians in the, first, in the third chapter, starting there in verse 1. Philippians 3. And starting in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me these I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed in his death to his death, if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is reminding us again of the contrast between a physical life and a spiritual life. In the physical realm, we spend a great deal of time in boasting in our accomplishments of what has been achieved and so forth. And oftentimes that can be carried over into the spiritual realm. And Paul was making that contrast between what he had as a Jew. You look at his history, what he describes here, as well as in Back in, in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, and you see what he had in being a Jew of a Hebrew of the Hebrews, being well-received, well-respected, moving on a track of being very well, highly respected in Judaism. But for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, the willingness to leave all that behind, they're willing to go through sufferings and persecutions for the sake of Christ and that hope of eternal life in heaven one day. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's a time in our life when we have to be able to move 
But sometimes we sing a song, Faith of Our Fathers, wishing that we had a faith that the fathers did and the willingness to sacrifice and being faithful to God. But there's a time when that faith of our fathers must become our faith. It's been said that because God does not have any grandchildren. Grandchildren are special, it seems. You talk to anyone who's a grandparent, they'll be glad to tell you how smart their grandchildren are and how wise they are and how quickly they've learned and so on and so forth. And I've heard parents talk about their, their parents. Remember an individual talking about the granddad doting on the grandson and how cute the things was that the grandson was doing. And the son, the father, looked at his dad and says, you know, if I did that, you would have taken your belt off and corrected me. And now you're saying it's cute when your grandson does that. There's a contrast between the two. God has no grandchildren. He has no favorites. What he expects out of one, he expects out of all. He expects us to be faithful to him, to have a love for his word, to have an understanding that's not what we have heard, it's what we have applied and learned or made the application for within our life. There has to be that understanding. We go back to Matthew 27, 22, excuse me, and verse 37. The first and the foremost of the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then Mark 12 and verse 30 will add, and with all your strength. But to love the Lord your God with all your mind. There is a personal application that indeed must be made by the life that we live in order to do the things that are pleasing to God. It's great to read of the life of those who've gone before us. We're reminded that they are written for our instructions, Romans 15, 4, that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. We have hope by reading the lives of those who serve God, those who made mistakes, were able to correct them and do God's will. Those who made mistakes, who did not correct them, who would suffer consequences as well. They're examples. But again, the example has to have its practical application within the life that we live. So we have to have this personal knowledge, if you will, of God. What we read, what we study that we can rightly divide that word and have an understanding of what is that will of God for me in the life that I live. To be able to see, even as we've read about it, to see that necessity of being able or being willing to leave a life that we've known, a life that we've been familiar with, a life that we may have been very successful at, and to leave that, to become a mere servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of being a servant, to lose all that prestige, if you will, and that recognition. And to realize, as Paul discussed, it's all rubbish. It has nothing to do 
with eternity with God. Face to face, we want to see the Lord. Face to face, to see that one who gave his life for us. And to recognize again how, if you will, insignificant the life was that we lived here. To be able to consider again whatever it is that we go through. Whatever persecution it is that we endure. Nothing compared to Jesus and what he went through. And nothing compared to what it will be in eternity. At times that we as individuals have questions about what we go through. We have questions about the why we have gone through what we've gone through and the length of time that may be involved in whatever it is that we're going through. And sometimes we wonder about the lesson. And I've heard individuals who, be it in jest or be halfway serious, have, have made their list of questions they want to ask God when they get to heaven. Why did that have to happen to me? What was the purpose of that within my life? I never did fully understand that. Sometimes we tell children as they're growing up, right now you do not understand, but someday you will. Well, I want to understand it now. Well, I want to have it explained to me again sometime in heaven. And I thought about it, and you've heard me make the statement, I do not know what happened on July the 16th, 1976. I have no idea. But I'm not going to put that on my checklist to ask God one day, why? Why did that happen? What was the purpose of that? It's been a long, ten, a long time since 1976, and I still do not understand why that had to take place. When you look at the Savior face to face, it will not matter. <coughs> will have no importance at all, I do not believe. Heaven, surely heaven, will indeed be worth it all. As we live here, our desire is to know more and more about Jesus. More of his holy word to discern. More of his understanding of his nature. It's easy to read through the Gospels. Sometimes it's hard to make the application of what he was going through and the way that he handled and did what he did is the setting of the example for us to follow in his steps. That he was persecuted and yet he would trust his father. He would ask the why, the why is to cross our mind. That's part of life. Job asked the why. It's not wrong to ask the why, it's who do you direct the why to? Do we direct it towards one another? Do we direct it towards Satan? Do we direct it towards God? God, why? And then to be able to hear the answer. Again, read Job 38, verse 1 and following, and you find a part of that in there. 
Again, that first question that God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Answer me if you know. How do you know what's taking place in nature, why they take place the way that they do? Do you understand why I formed the earth and why I created man? Do you know the purpose that is involved in my sending my son to this earth to die? The reason behind of all that, do you understand why I've prepared heaven for you? That one day to receive you unto myself, that where he is, that we may be also. That we may be forever with the Lord. Can you understand that? Why do we ask the why? We need the, the gratitude. The thanksgiving. Thank you, God. For loving me. Thank you God for saving my soul. Thank you God for giving me a home. That's eternal in the heavens. And thank you God for giving me Jesus. To walk with me day by day. To pick me up when I fall. To encourage me to move on. To trust him. More and more each day that I live. To understand his will being, working out, being worked out. To understand more about Jesus as being king. As being priest. What's involved in that. Of his being the savior. And of his being the chief shepherd. And how much he cares for his sheep. And Elaine said he was willing to go. We read about the parable of the shepherd having the 99 sheep and leaving the one and going, the 99 safe and secure and, and going looking for the one. And then reflect upon that concept for a moment and, and see Jesus. Leaving the glory of heaven to go look for that one sheep. And to search it out until he finds it. And to bring him home. The rejoicing. And then the comparison that made the more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous souls that need no repentance. The joy that it brings to God. And we thanked him for that. That we were that lost sheep. That the shepherd sought out. Through the giving of his word. To give us that hope. Of that eternity with him one day. To look at his works. What he did and how he did it. The master teacher. And yet do we have the understanding that the master teacher, as he worked and labored, did not convert all of those who heard his words, but that he loved them until the end. All the examples that he set for us 
always have been again intrigued or encouraged by Matthew 4, verses 1 through 10. The temptation of Jesus with Satan in the wilderness. And I've always found it interesting again, you know, from John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full, great, full, full of grace and truth. But the living Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God. And yet when the Word that was God that became flesh, when that Word was being tempted by Satan, that Word used the written Word. It is written. Three times it is said, it is written. It is also written that the living word used the written word to help him through his temptations. He faced temptations the same as we do, yet without sin, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4, verse 16 and 17. Tempted in all areas as we are, yet without sin. But he used the same source of strength that is given to us, the written word, that through that written word, as we looked this morning out of Psalm 119, that's what helps us to be able to resist Satan. Even as he uses the word, Satan himself uses the word, to know God's word to say, but it is also written. God or Satan can and does take the passages of Scripture out of context. We live in a world that is full of that example. Taking passages out of their context, making them say something that they do not say, and us to know how he works. He uses that word that he's given to us, wants us to plant it deep, that the word of Christ, what? Richly dwell within you. Let that word richly dwell. Let it take up its abode in abundance. Without limitation, if you will. That it floods our mind and it floods our heart. It guides the direction that we decide to go. That's his desire for us in the life that he's given here. Look at his shame and his suffering as he went to the cross. We understand the forgiveness of sins that is granted to us as we confess them, repent of them, and confess them, knowing that the blood of Christ washes them away. But it's that reminder each time that whatever the sin is, no matter how minute it is in our viewpoint, we have that tendency to categorize sins, white lies, big black lies, whatever else, just a little tale here, whatever else it may be. But whatever that sin is, <coughs> took Jesus to the cross and caused him to die for that sin. That's how serious God takes it. That's how serious Jesus took it. And it needs to be how serious we take it in the life that we live. It costs God, his son, 
upon that cross, his suffering. No way to fully comprehend that. Again, I've mentioned it times before. I mean, you read Matthew 26 and also 27 and see what Jesus went through. Read the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the terminology that is used to describe that suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. The agony on the cross. Not fully described for us, but those who have looked at it and discussed it and realized what it does to the human body. To realize that for the Romans, the cross was a means of crucifixion. The cross was never intended to be an easy or quick means of death. The Romans had perfected it. They fully intended a person on the cross to live the longest and to suffer the most through the agony of what he had done. To be done in public view, to be hung up on the cross with a sign of the crime over their head. He did that. Because he desires you to be in heaven with him. Look at that suffering. Look what he was willing to go through. Where is he now? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is he doing now? He's making intercession on our behalf. He's pleading our case. God is a just God. He demands justice. Jesus is pleading with the Father on your behalf that that justice was dealt with when Jesus hung on the cross. He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. Saying that we are children. The price for our sins have been pay, has been paid. And to move from that justice and that righteousness so that forgiving and patient Father encouraging us to make the changes that are necessary for us to be with him. Look at his future glory. Think of the joy that's involved in his coming. Think of the joy that is involved when he comes in that twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And the dead in Christ shall rise. And shall begin to ascend to meet him in the sky. And those who are alive at his coming will also be changed in the twinkling of an eye to meet him in the air. And there forever to be with the Lord. What a glorious anticipation that he has. To receive those who, through faith, conviction, and that determination... As Paul said, whatever I have here, whatever I have gained here is nothing for the excellence of the knowing of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's worth it. Again, because of who 
he is. And if I know him, how can I but not love him? Paul was closing out the second letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, excuse me. Closing out 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. Down to verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. You cannot be a Christian and not love the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be a follower of God and not love God and what he's done through Jesus Christ. If we lose that love, Paul says we will be accursed. O oh Lord, come. That anticipation. Is that our heart's desire, O oh Lord, come? Come quickly? As we look at our life, is that what we decide or striving to do? To live a life so that indeed we could say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Or do we feel at a time that we have a need to say, not quite yet, Lord. Things are not exactly the way I would want them to be. Not quite yet, Lord. Please delay your coming. But for the child of God, there can be no greater joy than to see the Father receiving his children. Is it that our desire to be a part of that? Out of my bondage, sorrow and sin, Lord, I come. Out of my bondage. It's the bondage that separates us. It's the bondage that in essence only destroys. The coming to Jesus in obedience to his will. The coming to Jesus in the surrendering of the life is the only thing that gives life and gives purpose to the life that we live. We teach and we admonish one another through our songs and our hymns and spiritual songs. So as we sing 875, Out of My Bondage, we're teaching one another. We're encouraging one another. And we're challenging one another. As we sing, there's a need for us to make a change in our life. Become that child of God to renew that life in Christ Jesus again. If there's a need there, and if we could assist you, if we could help you in that decision, then indeed we bid you to come as together we stand and sing. <laughs>